science is exciting. Yeah, it is really, it is really, yeah, this would be great if we could actually get paid well. Yeah. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Reproducibility, an open science podcast featuring early career researcher. I am Jan. I'm a PhD fellow at ITU of Copenhagen, and today I'm joined by Sophia. Hello, yes, I'm Sophia. Um, I'm a PhD student at the University of Cambridge, where I'm also right now. Um, and we're also joined today by Katrina and Ilse. Do you want to introduce yourselves? Yeah, absolutely. Um, hi, uh, so I'm uh, Kat Almeida-Warren. I am an early career uh, researcher, so a Level Hume Fellow at the University of Oxford and within the School of Anthropology and Museum Ethnography. Um, I primarily research chimpanzees and their culture using archaeological methods. And today I'm sort of joining the podcast in my capacity as a University College Union temporary representative for the department I work at. Okay, hi, my name is Ilse Pitt. I'm a PhD student at the Department of Anthropology at the University of Oxford as well. Uh, my background is in psychology and I study social norms. And I am also part of the University and Colleges Union postgraduate uh, group here at Oxford. Cool. Thanks so much, you two, for coming on. Um, as you listeners might have already guessed from the uh, introductions that today we are going to talk about the ongoing strikes slash industrial actions happening in the UK at the moment, particularly at the universities. Kat, um, from, for those not working or living in the UK, um, could you give us a brief overview of what is currently happening, what your dispute is about? Yeah, absolutely. Um... So at the moment, we're sort of going through two disputes, um, and these have been more or less ongoing for some time, but sort of the latest phase of the industrial action disputes sort of started in November last year. And the two main disputes, the first one um, relates to pensions. So there was a cut to pensions um, just after the pandemic. So many people got cuts in 35% of the contributions, which means that, you know, later on in life, when they do retire, they will have significantly less money uh, to rely on um, post-work. Um, and then the other dispute is sort of a more, is a broader um, action, which is uh, what in, within the UCU we call the four fights. So they're four fights um, that really are to the heart of the academic system in the UK. Um, one of them is um, pay raises, and this is connected to the fact that there really hasn't been a pay rise in the last 12 years, or at least one that has matched inflation. Um, and this mm -hmm. is something that applies to lots of different unions, and we can go into that a bit further maybe later on in the podcast. Uh, and then there's also the one of the fights is on working conditions. So a lot of people, um, a lot of workers within the unions have felt overworked and very stressed out with the workloads that they've been given. Um, so that's one of the main fights, especially for early career researchers who feel like they're obliged to do and work above and beyond mm. what their contracts mm -hmm. um, are telling them to do. And then there are also two other um, fights. One of them is related to uh, closing the pay gaps between um, women, men, but also people from ethnic minorities and with uh, disabilities. And that's something that is a huge, huge problem um, across the UK. And finally, which is a big one, especially for early career researchers, is to end casualized contracts. So these are contracts that are short term. So a lot of early career researchers and even um, professors or lecturers might be contracted on um, one year contracts, sometimes even less. 
Um, but the fact is that there's no continuity or sort of job security in that sense. So mm-hmm. very often people have faced, you know, 10, 15 years of these very short term contracts, which over time can be very taxing on on your day to day life, but also your academic progression. Um, so those are kind of the four the four fights and the, the pensions dispute that that are ongoing. Um, yeah. So if I understand correctly, at the moment, you are on a grading boycott. So uh, yeah, back in February, March, and also in December, or is it November? Um, wait, correct me, was it November mm-hmm. or December? It was November that we started, yeah. Okay, so yeah, um, back in November and December and February, March, there have been days of strike. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, yeah, days of, of not working and pickets, pickets, and at the moment, there is a marking and assessment boycott. So we're working, but not marking and assessing. Mm-hmm. As someone who never had to go on a strike, um, who was never called upon by um, their union. How are you two experiencing this? How is it to, you know, suddenly be on the picket line, suddenly have to take, you know, suddenly have to have to lay down work? Um, how are you experiencing that? So yeah, I during the strike, I, I would have I would have taught um, a few a few courses, but I and I that I didn't. Um, and obviously that sucked. Like it's not fun, and you feel bad for your students. Um, but it's yeah, it's it, it's it's important to disrupt the system. Otherwise, uh, the university has no incentive to change. Um, so that was going on. Um, we would we would sit on picket lines, which sometimes it could be fun. You know, we we're singing and and chanting and yeah, you know, making making noise and getting also support from people like driving by, honking. Mm-hmm. But also, it's a lot of hours just standing in the cold, um, which also is not not fun. And um, I don't know. It's also made me more aware, I guess, of how messed up the system is. So. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it's really nice that you're like forming this community and you're fighting back, and that feels really great. Um, but you're also more and more aware, I guess, of that, why is nothing changing? You know, we're we're out here, we're like asking for change, and nothing is happening, and that can be really frustrating as well. So that's been my experience uh, so far. And then currently, actually, during the marking assessment boycott, um, I I'm currently not teaching. I'm not marking any any assignments. But I have an assignment or like a, an assessment that is due to be marked. So I guess now I'm on the other side, I'm on the student side at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's a, that's also an interesting experience now, like from that side. And I, but I still fully, of course, support uh, support the boycott. I think it's uh, it's a good thing to be doing, and hopefully universities will listen more. And so, so, so aside from the fact, obviously, that you can be on both sides of of the strike. Um, are there any other differences for you as a postgraduate worker, as a student worker, um, to uh, the situation at Katzen? So yeah, as a, a PhD student in the UK, you are not staff. So generally, I, I cannot strike from my work, um, the research, uh, etc. Um, because I'm not being paid <laughs> to do so. Um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of PhD students also teach um, also to pay for their living costs. And that is a job the university, um, pays you for, and you can, you can strike. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been, it's been interesting being a, being a PhD student in the UK and not really being staff, but then occasionally also being staff and, uh, fighting for these things. And even, you know, even for the, even though I'm currently not staff, um, I plan to stay in academia. And of course these fights, uh, are really relevant to me in, in the upcoming years when I leave my PhD and hopefully, enter postdocs and professorships, etc. Do you think these yeah. strikes impact your 
personal career in like in the sense of you're not getting work done you're not working on publications mm -hmm. um and academia is fast moving we are very metrics obsessed to our own demise yeah um is this something you think about yeah um i mean i'll, I'll jump in here but yeah all the time i mean it, it is, um, it's great to be striking and it's great to be participating mm -hmm. in this. And, and Ilsa covered a lot of the sort of the benefits, but also the challenges of being involved in these disputes. Um, but as, as a researcher, and I imagine Ilsa will feel the same as a PhD student or a PhD researcher, um, trying to get their, their work off the ground and sort of um, mm -hmm. meet the deadlines. Um, it is quite disruptive. I mean, I'm, I'm at a stage where I just started my my sort of my new research um, in November. So it kind of aligned with the strike. So that obviously delayed a lot just with the planning process, making sure that I have all the equipment that I need or applying for the funds that I need to get that equipment. So there were delays on that front, also delays on just communicating with people and potential collaborations, because it means, you know, you're not really answering emails you're not you know it, it should cover all of those aspects of work connected to the university so that was quite hard and at some points it did feel like you know when when is this going to end and when am I going to be able to get back to the things that I'm passionate about and the research that I need to get done to kind of progress in my career and then the other side has also been delays with publications um so I had two publications coming out of my PhD that are on the docket and they're sort of um, either submitted or, you know, ready for revisions and things like that. And I had planned to basically have them ready maybe two months ago, but because of everything happening, it's, it's reprioritizing. And I've had to prioritize basically my current research because I have a lot of things happening later on in the year and had to put a pause on the publications themselves um, at the moment. So I'm only just getting back to that, but it is, means that there's sort of a couple of months delay in the whole planning and scheme of things which yeah for early career researchers it's a lot and uh, it's it's really hard to really make those decisions um you know is is this good for you because as an early career researcher as well if you're striking it might not seem like you have the same amount of impact as maybe someone who is teaching and has a lot of contact hours with students mm -hmm. um so our, our disruption as uh, researchers or even as PhD students isn't as obvious because we don't, the students aren't really affected by it. So it's kind of negotiating that. And there's been a lot of discussions within the union of how we can support each other. So in some cases, some people might feel like they're unable to, to strike for, for many different reasons. Sometimes it's mm -hmm. personal reasons and um, how we can support each other in the best ways we can and really leverage what our connections are with the university to make sure mm -hmm. we have the greatest impact possible. I just want to say like another thing we were also doing during the strikes, like, yeah, as Kat said, like it's, yeah, if you're not teaching that it, it's difficult to like impact the university because the university needs to somehow feel that pain, right. Of us not working. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have been organizing uh, teach outs. So like also to try to get the students more involved and, you know, explain to them why, why we're striking and hopefully get them on our side, um, which has been, I think quite successful, at least uh, yeah, a couple of students got more and more involved with the strikes, which was really, really great to see as well. So, so teach-outs is just when you, just when you... 
sorry, yeah, teach yeah, what, out is like, I guess, out, yeah. uh, <laughs> I guess is when you, when you quote teach in the broadest sense, uh, outside of, uh, university, university buildings. Mm. So we've had like radical knitting, but yeah, so we've had like, you know, speeches and rallies and like, radical I guess, knitting. quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So spending our time, like, yeah, knitting like little hats for, um, for preemie babies in the, in the hospital, for instance, or like, you know, and then chatting about, you know, just forming community, chatting about what else we can do as, as a, as a union. Um, I, yeah, we've also like, uh, created co-working sessions outside of department buildings. So people didn't have to work inside the buildings, but instead like could still get work done, uh, together, uh, outside. Um, and, you know, just also, yeah, fun, more, more fun events again, to build that community, and be visible to students. Um, we had a really lovely, like, radical love workshop as well, like, uh, in front of the Radcan, which is a, a big building, a big, um, yeah, here, a big square here in Oxford, um, where we had a lot of students join. And yeah, it's really great to try and, yeah, show the students that we're striking, how we're, and why we're striking. Um, yeah. So the students are kind of the people who are most um, affected by the strikes, correct? Well, you know, and, and, the, and the researchers themselves, right? Because I think, well, well, right, like as, yes. as, as we mentioned, right, like sort of striking that balance between what's going to be effective as a strike action and what is then yeah. actually not in your own interest. Yeah, it, I guess, yeah. When the, when the real workers strike, I guess the people who want to take the train are the most affected besides the people who are striking. But yeah, that's yeah. the same the same in this case. Yeah. And like the equivalent would be the students. And I mean, having a, taken a train the last uh, week um, with Germany also... Um, liking to strike a little bit yeah. at the moment the german trail work, train workers um i saw a lot of sentiment among the train users them not being angry at the uh the train company who fucks over the employees but at the employees mm. um did you experience something similar i mean as you already talked about that the students are supportive at least in part mm -hmm. yeah i mean my experience of being on the picket line, and that's the mostly on the picket line outside our department, there's been a lot of student support. We had a lot of students regularly coming and joining the picket line and bringing, um, coffee. <laughs> bringing nice. coffee and biscuits. And they also organize some of their own um, teach outs um, right at the start of, of the industrial dispute, which is really nice because they sort of created the space to have dialogue about uh, one of them was about industrial disputes uh, or strikes throughout the world, because a lot of our students come from lots of different backgrounds in different countries. Mm. So they sort of share their experience of striking in their own countries or, you know, relatives or people that they know um, striking and that relationship with the government and the institutions that they're striking against. Um, yes, we of course, there are people who are not happy with it. And <laughs> some of them are students. And I, I heard on the picket line from other colleagues that sometimes either they don't want to engage with us um and also from the general public as well i mean we've had once or twice a few people shouting out of the window of the car telling us to get back to work or calling us lazy bastards which <laughs> isn't, isn't really um yeah it doesn't feel great but at the same time um overwhelmingly it's been really supportive we've had lots of cars honking um also people who are in other unions disputing so ambulance workers yeah. and even uh police cars occasionally giving us a honk lots of mail delivery people because all of those unions have been on strike um mm. you know on and off over the last couple of months so there is this sense of solidarity and that's really what's 
keeping us going in many ways and the, the fact that you know there's so many UCU um, people on strike and engaging in industrial action and just the, the space for dialogue on the picket lines has really helped keep the motivation alive um, and the support I think has for the most part been super positive from everyone. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I also say, like, I think some students, like, I, I, a lot of students are probably also just ignorant or were ignorant to the fact that we were striking uh, the last few months, because maybe if, if you have one or two classes canceled, then maybe that doesn't, like, doesn't really linger that much. And I'm expecting them to be more aware this terms with the marking assessment boycott, because it will actually affect, yeah, the, the way they go forward in their in their term. Yeah. I mean, maybe just to really briefly bring this up because it's related and um, we're recording this on Friday the, the 28th and apparently earlier this week um, in the Netherlands where they are also striking in regards to the firing of um, Susanne Teuber. Um, apparently there the police um, was called to empty an academy building on protesters. Wow. Yeah. Which, yeah, um, I'm, I'm really hoping... Um, you will not have to deal with that. And um, also this this best case doesn't happen again. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's really terrible. Um, we haven't had anything like that happen here. And yeah, hopefully... Were, were mm. they fired because they went on strike? Is that what happened? Or? Um, so in this case, Susanne Teuber um, wrote an article. Well, she was um, uh, fired. Well, I think first overgone for a promotion and then she was fired. And she says this was because she wrote articles critical of her university and the um, firing mm. practices which were um, sexist if not also racist um, yeah. yes pretty ugly um, yes but yeah. um, and I, I would not be surprised if universities um, do not really like it if they get called out yeah um, yeah so. that's shocking but in, in some ways also not surprising. Um, I mean, there has been, it's not in any way sort of similar in the sense of someone getting fired, but there's several universities in the UK so far, not Oxford University, but others where the vice chancellors who are sort of the, the main um, mm -hmm. sort of person at the top of the university have threatened to dock 100, so remove 100% of pay for people who are taking part on the marking and assessment boycott. So mm -hmm. as Ilsa explained earlier, the marking and assessment boycott, you're still working and doing all of your other duties uh, as normal. You're just mm -hmm. not marking or conducting exams and doing mm -hmm. anything related to exams and assessments. So it is terrible that, mm -hmm. you know, there's this, you know, you're still doing your work, but we're just going to cut all of your salary because you're not doing this one bit which is mm -hmm. it is really worrying and really shocking that this is happening and uh and hopefully i mean i've i've heard from some universities i, I now can't can't remember the specific ones where they've been able to to win over or win over convince the vice chancellors or really show that this is not on and and those threats have been revoked um but it's not the case for everywhere um we're in a sort of unique situation here in oxford i think because a lot of the marking and assessment is paid in addition to our contracts in the most part so it's kind of a separate payment that doesn't mean that obviously if the vice chancellor wants to dock 100 i'm sure they can still threaten us with it but mm -hmm. at least there's this kind of separation between the two things which isn't necessarily great in the grand scheme of things but in this case yeah. it, it may uh, yeah 
safeguard at least um, that happening in Oxford. If, would that be legal to just dock 100% of your pay? Like, would that... I was about to ask the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Like, can, an employer, sorry, can, can an employer just randomly... Well, not, obviously not randomly, but can an employer just say, well, if you don't do this particular thing, then I'm not going to pay you at all? That seems that seems crazy. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not 100% familiar with the legal side of things, um, but my sort of very basic knowledge is that it really depends on the contracts people are on. So in some cases, there will be some clauses in the contract that if you're not doing all of the things that are in your contract, then there, the, there's some sort of, I don't know if it's a loophole or, or that mm. the university has a right to kind of decide um, if they're going to remove pay or reduce pay by a certain amount. So, um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't, don't quote me on that. You, there's probably information online that explains that a bit better, but that's kind of my mm. basic understanding on, on why universities are able to do it, um, even though it, it sounds completely ridiculous. So, um, does the does the union cover cases like these that the, that you get your pay from the union? Um, yeah. So the union um, has a lot of um, money that you know comes in through contributions from members, and that's one thing that's really great is that the contributions by making co monthly contributions it means that you know we have a pot of money that we can apply to to cover strike action for example a lot of us um obviously lost pay by going on strike over the last few months and you're able to mm -hmm. apply and the, the process has been actually fairly simple i've applied to it recently um and i was able to to recover most of the of the funds that i lost um and i think for these situations yes it, it is also possible of course dependent on on how much money they have um available overall Mm -hmm. uh, but they're also uh, very much active in sort of uh, helping with um, legal challenges or assisting particular cases um, at university levels to make sure that um, their workers are protected. Um, so there's a lot of support within the union to help in all of those situations and really fight back all of those things in addition to, you know, providing financial assistance as well. I mean, not not ideal, but that that's at least um, it's good that you get covered in the end. Good advertisement to join a union. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. I, I I did sign up this morning, since um, since I moved country recently, um, well, I didn't get around yet to sign up here in Denmark. Um, but yeah. No. Nice. <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I'm a student. Yeah. I think I'm like a, a non-paying student member of UCU. I definitely get emails, but there's no point Great. in Cambridge because um, PhD students who give, uh, who, did, who do any teaching, um, aren't, don't actually get contracts, so can't strike. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've just, I've just not been doing any teaching at all um, because I, I don't want to, because I just. No, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it didn't, didn't seem worth the effort and the sort of the yeah the ridiculous pay rates and, and stuff. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I think it's really uh, it's a big issue, and this ties to you know all of the things that we're fighting for, and and we can go into the uniqueness of Oxford and Cambridge in a little bit. Oh yeah. But the fact yeah. that um, 
these opportunities are given to, to students and, and in many cases also early career researchers as sort of career development opportunities. Mm-hmm. But then the financial compensation for that is, you know, a very small amount to nothing, which, you know, obviously it's great to get these experiences and that's how it's branded that way. But I also think it's really unfair that these aren't properly compensated because when other other people doing the teaching would get compensated for it. So it's almost like free labor, if, if yeah. not almost mm-hmm. it's free labor, let's call it that. Um, and I think it does really start affecting people's decisions as to whether they're actually going to take this career opportunity or actually do a different opportunity where they might still not get paid for it, but might be more rewarding, or at least it's, you know, something else, either helping a local, com- local community or helping local students. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that now we're starting to think more about it and and think carefully and hopefully that will also make universities listen and say hang on a minute we we have to Mm -hmm. (laughs) think what our what our economic system is and how we treat you know our the people who are doing teaching for us to make sure that they feel adequately rewarded and valued really yeah but the the problem is though that lots of phd students don't have so my my stipend covers my my living costs so i don't have to teach But obviously that's not the case for not just lots, for probably most PhD students. Um, And so it's not a case of being able to decide whether or not you want to take up this career opportunity, Mm. um, especially if you have restrictions on how many hours a week you're allowed to work. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. It's kind of like you're being held hostage, like you have a stipend that doesn't cover your living costs. And then they're like, oh, we'll throw you some money your way if you do some teaching, which will also be great for your CV. And you're like, oh, that sounds amazing. But actually, if you calculate the amount of the pay you get per hour, it's really, yeah. really, really Yeah, little. we're only going to pay you for the contract yeah. hour, not for the for, for yeah. the time that you need to prepare for that. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's it's insane. And at least in, yeah. the, in the case of Cambridge, and then you're also an independent worker. You don't, you're not actually, you don't get a contract uh, because, you know, you're just, you're just providing the service to the university as a completely... Yeah. yeah, yeah, that, that is so fucked up, honestly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just it is so, far... it's so ridiculous. I'm not laughing because, like, yeah, it yeah. is really ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I didn't so realize, sorry, go ahead. No, I just want to mention, like, in Finland, first in Finland, now here in Denmark, I'm I, I'm salaried, I get I get a fixed mm-hmm. amount of money every month. Yeah, um, I, I am in a weird limbo between staff and student. Mm. Um, when it comes to like rules and regulations here, but I am a full-time employee and I'm, I'm not being paid great, but I'm being paid as such I can live. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah no, it's, 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 I, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't realize before I moved to the UK how, how crazy the system is. Cause also usually most stipends, at least in my department are for three years, but most people take four to five years for their degrees. Mm-hmm. So when you get the stipend and you get, you know, you're accepted to the PG program, they're like, you'll take three years and we'll pay you for three years. Or, you know, somehow a funding body will pay you for three years. And you're like, okay, cool. And then actually you start looking around and you see the people taking way longer because that's actually how long it takes to do a PhD. Um, and you're just supposed to figure out how to pay, you know, the, the last year or two of your degree. And that's, I think, yeah. It causes a lot of people to have like part-time jobs by the, by the time they finish their degree. And yeah. I don't think that should be the way. Uh, that you know a PhD is conducted like you know yeah you should be able to to do research full time mm-hmm. and do it well without being stressed about your income yeah, um, yeah. so the the university and colleges union actually has a campaign uh, the post postgraduate group has a campaign to um, get PhD students to become staff in the UK but it's it's definitely a long 
a long ways away. But yeah, that's that's something we're also fighting for right now with the union. Uh, move on to a slightly different um, <laughs> question. Um, so, so far, um, yeah, I've been a member of a union now again, but only ever, you know, the person who pays the money every month um, mm -hmm. uh, to be represented. Um, you guys are more than that. You are active in your local chapters. How did that come to be? And um, how could one start? And what are you doing? I'd be interested to hear about that. Yeah, uh, great question. I think <laughs> the probably the most honest answer is that it, it just sort of happened. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, initially I joined the union just after I finished my PhD and I already had this um, sort of fellowship lined up and I was sort of listening to the struggles of some of my postgraduate, uh, postdoctoral colleagues um, and uh and and also just hearing what was happening with the ucu and i had made a decision for several different reasons of a bunch of different things that happened during my phd i'm sure all of you <laughs> experiencing this journey yourself right yourselves right now it's it, there's a lot of high stress and a lot of things that you know you get to learn about the system that you work in and you know what might or might not work for you and um, I was determined um, that if I was to stay in academia that I whatever I was going to do I was going to try and be active and and change change the system for for better um, and that's that wasn't necessarily initially my idea wasn't necessarily to do it through the union I was just you know I didn't really know what what was going to happen it, it was just you know I'll see how it goes and if opportunity arises to kind of stand up for for certain values that I believe in then I will do that and not sort of accept how things are which is kind of how mm -hmm. it happened with the PhD but also during the PhD it's really hard to have the headspace for these sorts of things and that was kind of where I was at the time so um, and then as I as I joined the union and then started attending some of the meetings um, uh, and then the strike started happening and I joined the picket line at the time I was still just a member and just joining in with things that were being organized and it came you know to, to the surface so I, I learned that the the current um, rep for my department was actually going to be away on sabbatical for six months to a year um and they were looking for someone to kind of step in and and replace them temporarily um so i i didn't at the time feel like i actually had the energy or the headspace to do it but no one mm. uh came up and um sort of said you know put them themselves forward so i i i figured well someone has to do it so that's kind of how i ended up volunteering myself for that role um because I felt it, it was that important that, you know, regardless of, of how much work I had on, that was something that I truly cared about. And I wanted to, to help make a difference and support my colleagues in whatever it was that they needed. And that's kind of how it, it happened. And then I've just been learning a lot about the UCU and how to organize. There were a few sort of training sessions um, available on sort of how to mobilize unions and how to get people to join and how to convince mm. people why it's important to have this collective action. Um, so that has all been really good. And it's been just great to have the energy of, of my colleagues as well. And that's kind of how it sort of snowballed into where I am today. Um, it's still a very, it's still a learning process. I'm still figuring out 
um, best ways to engage with people and support people, including supporting students, of course, because you know, we, we all, none of us want to be on strike. None of us want to have a marking and assessment boycott, but mm. you know, we feel that this is the only way that we're going to be able to deliver you know, the, the teaching and the support that we think our students deserve at yeah. the same time, while also having a working life balance that we need for ourselves and our own mental health. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of how it ended up. And maybe I'll continue. We'll see how it goes once my colleague returns. Maybe we'll do sort of a joint um, rep. Um, so one representing the early career researchers and one representing more senior members of staff. But yeah, see how it goes. Can't hurt to have more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How about you, Ilse? Um, yeah, so also similarly, I guess, sort of happened. So I think with a lot of like activism and community work, like, you know, it's mm -hmm. a lot of volunteers working on something together. So it started off with, you know, yeah, when the strikes were happening and I and I'm a member, yeah, I was already a member of the union and I was aware, but like more and more aware of like things happening and the union actually doing, you know, organizing things and you don't really see all the behind the scenes work normally. So I, at some point, got frustrated that, the students weren't like getting getting involved so much or weren't informed by the union. So I was like, hey, are you guys doing anything about this? Can we like do this? And then basically they were like, that's a great idea. Yeah, go ahead and do that. Which I think I didn't realize, you know, beforehand that it's again, like this volunteer run organization and the oldies, everybody who is in the union and active in the union is stressed and overworked all the time and they really care, but they're, yeah, mm -hmm. they're working on top of their jobs to like make rallies happen and to make all these things happen. Um, so yeah, I, I sort of got dragged into that that way being like, oh, I think this thing should happen. And, you know, a group of people saying like, great idea, go ahead and do it. Um, and then I was like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. I guess I guess I'll be doing that now then. So then I got more involved with the postgraduate mm -hmm. group and, uh, yeah, creating documents to inform the students and running a campaign to like get different student organizations to pass motions of support and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And that's been really, that's been really cool. But yeah, also just sort of like seeing a problem and then realizing you're going to have to be the one that's to, to solve it. Um, because yeah, people are just stretched very thin within the union. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That's been really great. Thank you so much for coming on, talking about um, what is going on in the UK. Um, I don't really want to uh, end on this topic um so usually we uh, at least you know starting with this season we kind of uh wanted to close our episodes out with the chance of um you know just talking about some things we want to talk about be it a rent and i think um in this case since you guys didn't really have the opportunity do you want to talk about why you're actually in academia what are, what is your research actually about and also, if you want to give it a reproducibility twist, tell us about um, how open science comes into uh, into your research and what the um, problems are that are specific to your research area, which I think uh, both of you will will have interesting answers to, um, as you right, like just just from looking at at what what it is that you're working on. You want to go first, Kat? Uh, sure. Yeah. So. Um... As I said earlier, I uh, research chimpanzee technology and culture, and I use archaeological methods to kind of study those sorts of behaviors. So 
a lot of it is observing the primates in the wild. So I do field work um, in different African countries. Um, at the moment, I'm planning to do field work in Guinea, which is in West Africa, and then also in Tanzania, which is in Eastern Africa. Um, so I, I work with wild chimpanzees and I combine this, this technique of observing their behavior and then seeing how that behavior translates into some form of an archaeological record. Um, and traditionally, a lot of this research um, has focused only on uh, tool use, um, so stone tool use from chimpanzees or plant-based tool use more recently. Um, and this is because it links very nicely to our understanding of, of our own human origins and the archaeology mm. that we have for our early ancestors. Um, and most of the remains that we have from those records, so if we talk about 3 million years to 2.5 million years and, and even to 300,000 years, which is when we have the first plant remains, um, most of the remains that we have are stones and bones. So mm -hmm. really studying primates uh, and the primate tool use has really been helpful to understand how the archaeology is formed and how we can how the archaeology can actually tell us about the behavior itself. Um, and my project at the moment is really going, taking a step beyond the technology. So chimpanzees are very cultural beings. They do a lot of things um, which vary between different communities. So the way they might forage for, for food, the way they might construct nests, also how they communicate or drum on trees and all of these things are part of their mm. cultural repertoires and their the huge diversity among the different communities across Africa. And what I want to see now is how those other behaviors and other tool using behaviors might leave archaeological traces, both as material remains, so artifacts mm -hmm. like you'd have in stones and, and, and tools themselves, but also potentially chemical traces that then end up in the soils. So there's kind of a combination of different approaches that I'm looking at. And it's really exploiting the full scope of the tools that we have in the in archaeology itself so archaeology that we apply to human records and maybe in the more recent past uh, to sort of the primate records or the chimpanzee records to really get um, a greater understanding of what we might find in our distant past because we haven't really used many of those techniques so yeah, hopefully that's kind of where I'm going. Um, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, I'm really excited about it. But I think one of the things that I'm also a sort of, a, it's not a side project, it's actually part of the main project itself, is actually uh, using this knowledge and really expanding our knowledge on, on uh, chimpanzee cultures and chimpanzee cultural heritage and documenting it. Um, so we can, you know, hopefully it will help with conservation action, both in terms of reaching the world and telling stories about these primate communities and the diverse cultures that they have, but hopefully also inform the strategies that we have in terms of conserving these populations and the decisions that are made, um, because a lot of these populations are at risk of extinction um, mm -hmm. for yeah. several different reasons. And it's how can we understand their cultural behaviors and how this culture helps them um, adapt to their environment or survive in their environment and how we can then use that on several different scales. So that's something that I'm also really excited about and hope my research can contribute as well. Um, on the topic of reproducibility, <laughs> which um, just to kind of close on that, um, I think that's a really interesting question and point. And I think because of the nature of the research, it's actually quite complicated to, to, to do, to have reproducible methods in the sense that you might have with experimental research and other yeah. other stuff because the data can be it, it is dependent on the field site that you're studying you're studying wild animals 
Um, and that means that, you know, there are certain methods that you might have to adapt and tailor to different field sites. Um, that said, I am comparing two field sites. So I'm hoping that the, the data and methods that I'm using are applicable to those field sites, but I also want to ensure that that will then be applicable and expandable to more field sites. So we have a big, a bigger picture of sort of the, the mosaic, the cultural mosaic. Um, but I think within my field, it's still, um, uh, uh, we still haven't reached that learning curve. I think we're still trying to figure out how to integrate more reproducible methods into our research. Um, and I think there's a lot of conversations that we still need to have about it. And hopefully mm. we, can, we can learn a lot from, from the work that, that you're doing in your own fields. Um, because I think it, it, it is important, of course, in some cases, it might be really difficult to, to ensure that we keep it that way. But yeah, for the future of research and ensuring that we can um, make sure this is uh, applicable in, in all the contexts, then yeah, I think we definitely need to move forward. And hopefully with my research, I can, I can work on that as well. Oh yeah, really cool. Uh, I, I, I find it fascinating, honestly, that, I mean, you know, thinking about it, of course, that that uh, like different chimpanzee tribes, families have different cultural um, aspects. The kind of idea that uh, chimpanzees have certain architect architectural disciplines sounds super interesting, or um, traditions, let's say, sounds super yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. How about you, Ilza? Um, so my research. Mm -hmm. um, so broadly, like if in my PhD, I look at how uh, social norm violations affect how we like evaluate and behave towards in-group and out-group members. Um, yeah, a, a couple of my studies that I'm working on are registered reports, which uh, has been really cool, but also yeah, comes with a, like a, like all that front-loading work that I um, yeah, it's 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 super exciting, and I'm really happy to be uh you know i have all my material already i have all my analyses ready etc but it's also uh frustrating sometimes that i i'm quite far into my phd and i still don't have any data because i need to you know submit submit the registered reports i need to be you know reviewed and then only then i can start collecting data so that's been interesting um yeah also yeah last summer i conducted a pilot study for a replication that we're working on <laughs> um and that's also been uh been really interesting. So yeah, I'm replicating a study from the 1980s. Um, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but um, yeah, what, what we did, what we did in this pilot is, is use both quantitative methods. So test material, you know, on like how to, to what extent we're manipulating the, the right variables, which is desirability. Uh, but also um, because the context is a little bit different, we're, we're looking at a different Italian city than the original study. Um, how people in in that different city like you know look at the material if that's in the same way that people did in the 1980s um, and we added some qualitative elements so we did a focus group to discuss how we could change the material to you know test the same hypotheses but also stick to as close of a replication as possible so that's been quite cool um but yeah so yeah um replications uh, reproducibility i don't know i try to do everything as reproducible as possible uh you know version control and all that um what's the finding you're trying to replicate so yeah thank you for asking because i realized i was talking very abstractly um so and we're looking at linguistic intergroup bias so this is a study from 1989 by mass et al it's the effect that if you uh, discuss positive behavior from your in-group, you are uh, inclined to do so in more abstract terms than if, if, if it's the out-group. 
and the up opposite if it's negative behavior. So if you see um, one of your in-group kicking a dog, that's one of the vignettes that they used, um, you you would say, oh, he's kicking a dog. Like you would describe it very concretely. Whereas if it's an out-group member, you would say like, this person is, is evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's positive behavior, uh, you know, you if it's an in-group member, you would say like, this person is amazing. And if it's an out-group member, you'd, you'd say like, oh, they're just helping an old lady cross the street, you know? So that concrete abstract dimension, um, yeah, so I that's... I remember that back from social psychology. Yeah. It's one of the... <laughs> it's one of the like foundational like mm-hmm. intergroup bias studies, yeah. So it's really cool, but it was conduct- conducted in Ferrara in Italy in the 1980s in this very specific context where in an Italian city, you have different neighborhoods that compete together in horse races. And um, yeah, and because they, they have these horse races they compete in, they have very strong group identities in those neighborhoods. Um, and so that's the context they, they conducted that study in. And we're going to do replica- the replication in Siena, which is a different Italian city with a similar social structure. Um, but we have to make sure we have, we have to make sure in this pilot that, you know, the material fits uh, you know, the, for instance, in the in the, in in Ferrara, they also have donkey races. In Siena, they don't. So some of the vignettes have had donkeys in it, and we have to change them to horses. You know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we want to do a close replication, but also yeah, honor the the cities and and yeah. So that was been that's been the, the the pilot that we've been running for a replication that we that is the register report that we'll be submitting soon. Yeah. Sounds really cool. Yeah, I think it's super interesting. And yeah, and I think it's really cool to be replicating a foundational effect like that. Mm-hmm. And also just digging into the exact analyses that they uh, that they did and you know, trying to replicate them, but also update them with like more modern um, analyses. Because yeah, the 1980s had, you know, some different standards for <laughs> for how to conduct a statistics. So yeah. yeah. And even like on the reporting level, I would not be surprised if the paper is very is missing important details if you want to replicate it. Um, so I, I think that they like for like for I mean I say for the time of course I wasn't around. Um, like I think they did a really great job. Like I've seen papers that like report way less than than mm. than they than they are reporting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. They're still. I mean, yeah. I, we just had to. Um, so I say we. By the way, my my co-authors Adam Kenny and uh, Laura Fortunato. So yeah. Um, I had to simulate data based on based on means that didn't have standard deviations, mm. um, you know, stuff like that. Also, sometimes they report a t-test where I, you know, it would make sense for them to do a paired t-test, but the degrees of freedom in- include, uh, like, imply that they did a um, what's it called? Not a paired samples t-test, but a you can do it like a within within subject t-test or a between subject t-test, and they did like so yeah, so yeah, the degrees of freedom imply that they did a between subjects t-test instead of a within subject t-test, which would make sense for their for their design. So things like that, where I'm like, Ooh, I'm not really sure you guys did exactly what you're supposed to, um, but they've definitely tr- you know tried to do it really well. They they they. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's maybe a bit condescending. Um, so I'm just trying to say, like, they 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 report a pilot study and they report things pretty well. For again, I think compared to other studies I've read from the from the time. Hmm. But yeah, according to our modern standards, I would definitely say that yeah, they can yeah, we can use some updates in in our replication study. Yeah, that's what you're doing. Very cool. Yeah, no, exactly. That's what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, because it's a it's a it's a very interesting effect, and I think it it deserves a replication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Great. Anything to add? Otherwise, I'd slowly start with the outro. Great. I think I yeah. think we've I think we've we've, we've got it back to um, to positive land. 
if if yeah. that was the plan. <laughs> Make people Science is exciting. Yeah, it is really, yes. it is really exciting. And people um, should be paid. Yeah, this would be great if we could it. actually get paid well. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 That's that's a good that's a cl good closing statement. Okay. So, um, Elsa Cat, um, if our listeners want to, where where could they find you? Um, is there anything you want them to look up? Um, mm -hmm. I. I don't know, the UCU takes donation, I guess, I, I assume? Yeah, so the UCU takes, um, yeah, does take donations. I think you can just find that if you Google ucu.uk, I think, or .com, it should show up. Um, we'll put a link in the description. Great, yeah, exactly. yeah, thank that you. That would be great. Um, I think local branches also take donations. Um, so, yeah, so there's sort of two different pots there's the the national pot and there's the local branch that also tops up basically with contributions as well um so yeah those two accept donations um yeah in terms of if you're interested in my research and you want to follow me or learn more i'm on uh twitter um i'm sure jan will put that in the in the chat in the chat as well or in the link for the Will do. For the podcast but yeah so it's just at katarina warren um and i also have a website uh, which i'll pass on to Jan. so if anybody wants to follow up on that and also if anybody wants to get in touch with questions about the ucu or my own research you're very welcome to cool say, yeah same here you can yeah you can google me or find me on twitter or yeah Google me and then email me if you find my email address <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions about anything. Awesome. How about you, Sophia? Oh, okay. I, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I guess I want Do to... Do you want to be found on Twitter? I mean, honestly, not on Twitter, um, but, also, <laughs> but also I'm not using Mastodon enough, so... I mean, I guess I guess it's back to email for me, but yeah, I think I think I'm pretty findable online. I'm very happy to to talk to people. Messenger pigeon, perhaps. <laughs> but I but I I thought I thought this was a question for our guests. <laughs> Jan, where can people it's find you? It's a question for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am at vornhagenjb at hci social on Mastodon, um, and I'm also still on Twitter, but not not actively. Um, trying to avoid. Yeah, I'm Please. still to make that transition. Mm. <laughs> As I say, I'm also on Mastodon, but I use now I just use neither. So exactly, that's, <laughs> that's exactly the transition that I've made as well. I'm on Mastodon as well. Yeah, and I'm just kind of I just lurk on on both it, very little. It is it is absolutely the healthiest choice. Yeah, um, <laughs> probably. Is, yeah. Thanks, Elon. Oh, so much annoying stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And with that, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Um, thanks so much for coming on, um, Ilan Cat. It was great. Thanks for having us. Um, Sophia, great talking to you. And hopefully see you all around. All the best for the fight. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.